Today we continue our sermon series, Render Unto Caesar, looking at faith and politics, what's going on in the world around us and how Christians should respond. I've been kind of shocked as I have been preparing this sermon and reading and researching about how political the Bible is, particularly how political the life of Jesus is. Maybe I've just never thought about these stories and looked at these texts with those kind of eyes before, but, but I've been amazed in looking at them, how much on every page of the scripture I can see political realities and political implications. Today for this sermon, I want to walk through the Bible and look at how faith and politics mingle and move in the scriptures and especially in the life of Jesus. At the very beginning of the Bible, God creates the heavens and the earth, and we see two major political claims right off the bat. First, people are made in the image of God. All of us. People are inherently important and valuable. They're not that way because of what they can offer to society. They're there by their very nature, being made in the image of God. The second is that people are meant, their purpose on earth is to care for creation. To name it, subdue it, and fill it. This is why it's such a problem when Cain kills Abel. Cain Cain asks, "Am, am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you're your brother's keeper. And you're responsible for what you do in this world. And you're responsible for what you do to those who are also made in the image of God. But there's a problem right away. Problem right away. Something goes wrong in the world. What was good in creation is now decidedly not good. There's murder in the next generation. Within a few more generations, God floods the earth. And later, God confuses the people's languages at the Tower of Babel so that there would be a limit to what evil can be accomplished by groups of people in society. At the same time in Genesis, God begins a plan to do something about sin and about evil. He calls a man named Abram to begin a people that will be a blessing to the nations. The vision has a sense of global and political significance. Listen to these words from Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will dishon- in, in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abram's call is one of global significance. All the nations are going to be blessed because of your nation. All the families of the world are going to be blessed because of your family. Generations later, as this promise is being fulfilled and the nation of Israel is growing, they find themselves as slaves in Egypt. This is the pivotal moment of the Old Testament. It's the story that defines the people of Israel. Because God is not a God of slavery. God is a God of freedom. All people are made in the image of God and are not to be treated as commodities, things to be used. The Exodus defines how Israel should treat people, especially the poor, the disenfranchised, and the sojourner in their lands. Listen to these words from Deuteronomy chapter 24, 
starting in verse 19. God is speaking to the people and saying, When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather grapes in your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. So Israel's got to care for the people in their midst, remembering that they were once slaves. So when they go over their field and they leave a stalk that's still standing, they're not allowed to go back and get that stalk. They've got to leave it so people that are in need can, can go back and get it. They weren't supposed to plow. They're, they weren't supposed to harvest the edges of their field. They were supposed to leave those for those in need. When they go out and beat the olive trees, try to knock all the olives down uh, for the harvest, they weren't allowed to go back and do it again. They were supposed to leave them so that the poor, the fatherless, and the sojourner in their land could go back and shake those trees and support themselves. God's people were meant to take care of those in their communities that were in need. Israel did not have a political structure that looked anything like ours today. Israel was fundamentally a theocracy. They were ruled by God. But God would raise up people like Moses or Joshua to lead the people. Or judges like Gideon or Deborah to guide the people. Or prophets like Elijah or Elisha to speak God's word to the people. These agents of God would lead his kingdom and his nation. But when the people of Israel finally got to settle into their land, they took a look around at all their neighbors, and you know what they noticed? All these other neighbors have kings. They all have kings. They all have rulers. We should have a king. They asked the prophet Samuel to ask God on their behalf to give them a king. But Samuel brings a message from the Lord back in 1 Samuel 8, starting in verse 10, saying, This king stuff that you want. These rulers are not all they're cracked up to be. 1 Samuel chapter 8. I'm going to start in verse 11 actually. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots. And to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties. And some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest. And to make implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants." One of the problems with rulers and leaders, says God through the prophet Samuel, is that they take what they want and what they need. They can be captivated by greed, by power and the desire for more. People end up becoming a commodity for them to use for what they want in their reign. In fact, this is exactly what happens with the kings of Israel. Kings of Israel are... Uh, are, are, are 
drawn to the gods of other nations. And they are drawn to fulfill their own desires in the nation. They end up treating people very poorly. The nation follows in their way. It follows their lead away from the things of God and towards cruelty in the abuse of others. In response, God raises up prophets to speak out against the kings and the injustices of the people. All summer we've been looking at the minor prophets that do that very thing. When we turn to the New Testament, the focus moves away from the story of a nation and a people and turns to the story of a person. Jesus steps on the scene and lives a very public and political life. Before Jesus is even born, his mother Mary sings a song magnifying the Lord of what is happening in her womb. Listen to this as I read some sections of Luke chapter 1. And listen to how political her song is about what's going on in her womb. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Mary rejoices that her son will bring the mighty from their thrones and exalt those in humble estate. What's going on in her womb will upset rich and poor. Mary sees something politically significant happening inside of her body. Jesus is born in the midst of a genocide as King Herod kills all the male children in the region of Bethlehem under two years old. Jesus in his very existence is seen as a threat to the king of his day. Jesus is not killed, for Joseph was told in a dream to take his family to Egypt. Think about that. Jesus was a Middle Eastern refugee who immigrated to another country. The entire life of Jesus on earth is a critique against the political structures of his day. Think about the people Jesus spent time with. The people he cared for. He's constantly helping the poor and the disabled. He touches untouchable lepers. He pulls children onto his knee. He crosses racial and ethnic lines in his dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus has a relationship with women in his ministry that would be shocking in his day. He did not care what the established laws were about work on the Sabbath. He chose to heal people anyway. Jesus has one disciple we call Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot. And that probably means he was a very nationalistic Jew that wanted to overthrow the Roman occupiers. But Jesus also has a disciple named Matthew who's a tax collector. And the tax collectors were hated because they were sellouts to the Roman Empire. They would collect the taxes to fund the occupying army from their countrymen. This mixture of people that Jesus hangs out with. Think about the teachings of Jesus. In his teachings, people are valuable. Sheep are worth finding. Coins are worth tearing the house apart for. Samaritans can be examples of love. The last will be first. Blessed are the poor 
the meek, the mourning, the peacemakers, and the persecuted. Jesus said, whatever you have done to the least of these, you've done to me. No wonder the elites and those with power in his day had to get rid of him. His way of living and his way of seeing of the world was a direct threat to their power. Jesus uses kingdom language to talk about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. That may not strike us as very political language because we don't have a king. And we may not talk about our nation as a kingdom. But in Jesus' day, he lived in a kingdom. A kingdom that was a part of the larger Roman Empire. And when he uses the language kingdom, it is very political language. Perhaps if Jesus had been born today, he would have talked about the republic of heaven or the democracy of God, the nation of heaven, or the presidency or administration of God. See, when we hear those terms, we start to get a grasp of just how political his language, in fact, was. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem on what we would call Palm Sunday, he does so with a nationalistic symbol of palm branches being waved. But he doesn't come riding on a horse like probably the king had come into Jerusalem earlier that day. He comes humbly riding on a donkey. His kingdom is different. The language of kingdom becomes important in his trial. In John chapter 18, we read about how he goes before Pilate. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say this, say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Understand the political power of this moment. Jesus has been tried by the Jewish priests and authorities. But they want him killed. They want the death penalty. And in that system, they're not allowed to give the death penalty. So they have to send him to the Roman authorities to be tried, to be killed. So Pilate has to do a trial. He tries to get out of it. But in the end, he has to do the trial. And his question marks the crux of the case against him. Are you the king of the Jews? See, crucifixion is a death reserved for traitors to the Roman Empire. It's a very public death that they would do outside the city so that everyone would know this is what happens. This is what happens when you rebel against the Roman Empire. This is what we do to our traitors. And so the whole case against him has to be that he's a traitor to the Roman Empire. Pilate says, are you the king? Are you the king of the Jews? But Jesus answers that his kingdom is not of this world. Obviously, since his disciples aren't fighting He's succumbing to the kingdom of this world. Pilate is not convinced of guilt, but under pressure 
of the crowd gives Jesus the death penalty. Crucifixion. The death of a political traitor. Jesus dies with a sign above his head that declares him to be king. This moment of the cross is the exodus of the New Testament. It's the place where people are freed from slavery to sin and death. It's the sign of freedom that calls us to treat differently those around us because we know that we were once slaves and are now free. The resurrection is the ultimate sign of this freedom and this new life. The rallying cry of the early disciples was Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. We don't understand how political that was. But whenever you would gather to hear proclamation from Caesar, you would always end that with the phrase, Caesar is Lord. The the whole crowd would have to proclaim, Caesar is Lord. And so when the early disciples start saying that Jesus is Lord, it's in direct opposition to what everybody else would say about the Caesar. In fact, whenever you would gather to hear a message from Caesar that would end in Caesar is Lord, you would go in a gathering that they would call an ecclesia, just a word that means gathering, an ecclesia. And the early church took that same word, ecclesia, and used it for their gatherings. Think about that. The church was named after gatherings to proclaim that Caesar is Lord. The church was named after a political meeting. Jesus said that his kingdom was not of this world, but the understanding at the end of the Bible, if you read all the way to the end and you read Revelation, is that that wouldn't always be the case. Revelation 11.15 proclaims, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. In Revelation, people from every nation, from every tongue, are going to someday bow before and confess Jesus is Lord. Some of the disciples thought this would happen right away. They asked him before his ascension, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They were wrong to think that it would be so immediate. But they were right to believe that someday it would happen. And until then, until Christ comes return, and until his kingdom becomes this whole kingdom of the world, we sit here as followers of Jesus and people of this book. And it is our job to look at the political systems of our day and critique them and be active in them. What we need to do to do this are two things. Number one, I think we need to be informed by the Bible. And number two, I think we need to be inspired by the example of Jesus. What do I mean by that? To be informed by the Bible, I think, means to take these stories and have them be the inspiration, the imagination that we have about what's going on in the world and how the world should be. To take this book and to make it the the thing that guides our priorities. So that if something's important in the book, it's important in our lives too. To be informed by the Bible means realizing that the Bible, from start to finish, pushes us into public life with our faith in hand. The faith of the Bible is not a private faith. It's a public faith. 
There's no private Christianity. It's such a central part of who we are that every area of our life has to be touched by it. I think that means this is a high standard. That for every position we take in our outlook on politics, we ought to be able to make a case for it out of the Bible. What's the book say? How did you land on the position that you're taking? To be inspired by the example of Jesus means we approach our public life and our political involvement in the mold of Jesus. John Howard Yoder calls Jesus a social critic and an agitator, a dropout of the social climb and a spokesperson for a counterculture. Jesus did not hold public office. He did not become a priest or a centurion. He didn't do any picketing or political lobbying. The authority of Jesus did not come from this world. Instead, Jesus created an alternative community that looked very different from the world around him. It was a, the citizens of this kingdom cared about people. The kingdom was based on service. These people lived lives of joy and gratitude because they understood where their true citizenship lies and they understood that they were once slaves but have now been made free. And it was a community based on humility. Humility is not a word I would use to describe just about anything going on in politics today. Just about any of our political discussions today. But I think as Christians, that should be one of the central markers of our lives and our public involvement. I think that too many Christians, many of us today, are like those disciples at the ascension of Jesus. Wondering if Jesus is now going to break in to have an earthly kingdom. We want Jesus to break in and make things right in the world. After all, how long is Jesus going to let things get worse and worse and worse? But the thing about the kingdom of God, as Jesus lived it and talked about it, is that it doesn't come by power. The reign of Jesus moves in this world by reigning in our hearts. And as we, not with our voices, but with our lives, proclaim, Jesus is Lord. Christians want to change the world, want to change the politics of their day. It has to start by Jesus starting to actually really reign and rule in our hearts and in our lives. That's how the reign of Christ will change the world, moving heart to heart to heart. The revolution that began on the cross is perpetuated in the love and the service of those that let Christ be Lord of their lives. The early church got this. In the early church, they followed Christ's examples and they were guided by the Bible. They built some of the first hospitals, some of the first orphanages. They developed systems of adoption. They served and worked for the betterment of the kingdom where they lived. They built strong churches to care for needs and develop better citizens in the world. Later, a number of Christians would be influential in forming this nation around the biblical themes of freedom and liberty. I'm convinced that for us to think about politics, it has to start in here. It has to start with us. The best thing that we can do for our nation and for our world is to be faithful Christians and strong, faithful churches. 
What we desperately need right now is for Christians to put Jesus first and to be guided by God's word. Then, I'm convinced, heart to heart to heart, person to person to person, the reign of God can change this world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the guidance of Scripture. We thank you for your love and your grace that you have saved us from sin and from death. Speak to us, we pray, that we will be guided by your word and guided by your example, that the political positions that we take, that the votes that we make would come out of that foundation. Lord, reign in our hearts where we feel so much fear and so much anguish. Bring peace in your rule. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.